I mean, the essence of the idea of an autonomous weapon is a weapon that's making its own targeting decisions about which specific targets to strike. When you lose comms with it, what do you want it to be able to do? Does it come home? Does it do reconnaissance and just take pictures? Is it allowed to drop bombs on pre-programmed fixed targets? What if it comes across targets of opportunity? What do you want it to do? Do you want it to hold fire? Do you want it to attack them? What if it's attacked? Is it allowed to use force to defend itself? Well, how hard would it be to do this yourself? Kind of a, a DIY, you know, do-it-yourself autonomous weapon. And uh, somewhat terrifyingly, it's not that hard um, because all of the tools you would need are commercially available. You could buy a quadcopter, you could put a gun on it, people have done that. You know, the decision-making processes you would need to maybe build like a terrorist version of this to target uh, people are, you know, openly available open source tools you can download online for free. You can download trained neural networks that, um, that can identify people. And the skills that you would need programming-wise to build this are not that sophisticated. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down to speak with Paul Shari. Paul is with the Center for New American Security and is really one of the leading thinkers on artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, and what these will mean for the future of warfare. It's a really fascinating conversation. I'm sure listeners will enjoy, but before we get to that, really quickly, a couple notes. First, hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Paul Shari. Paul, thanks very much for sitting down and, and talking to us about, um, I guess, autonomy and, and the future of war. Um, I guess just to kind of frame frame this before we kick it off, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your background. I mean, I, you know, people who are familiar with you will know that you were, you know, 75th Ranger Regiment guy in the Army. How do you go from there to, well, here? Yeah, um, thanks. So well, we're currently at the Center for New American Security, a Washington, D.C. think tank. Um, where I run our technology and national security program. Uh, I've been here for about four and a half years now. Prior to that, I was at the Office of the Secretary of Defense in the policy shop there. And before that, I was in the Army, uh, in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion. I did a number of tours uh, in Afghanistan with the Rangers early in the war. And then actually did, a, I guess, a bonus tour, you could call it, um, through the IRR as a civil affairs specialist. So sort of the opposite of a Ranger, if you will. Um, but did that in Iraq right around the surge time frame. And, um, and when I got out, I was, I was, when I got out of the Army, I was really interested in defense policy. I had seen uh, up close and personally how decisions people make in Washington affect folks out there on the front lines. And I thought, well, you know, I'd like to do, do my part um, to, to make those decisions a little bit better. So I ended up in the Pentagon for a number of years. And uh, this topic of autonomy and other emerging technologies kept coming up. Uh, particularly as the robotics revolution, you know, was advancing, I find it just very fascinating, and so really got sucked into that in the Pentagon, and I've been working on those issues ever since at CNAS. 
so I think some people, I, me included, uh, would look at that and say like that, that jump from sort of, you know, high speed tactical army ranger type to looking at kind of the future of war and technology and automation and autonomy uh, is a big leap. But uh, you've got a new book, Army of None, uh, Autonomous Weapons in the Future of War, that uh, you open with two sort of anecdotes, one of them being from your time in Afghanistan, um, which suggests that, you know, those experiences do sort of inform the way you think about this. Do you find that often or is, is it really kind of a big leap from from sort of one world to the other? Um, yeah, I open with this this anecdote about a, a situation we encountered um, in eastern Afghanistan up on the AFPAC border where I was in a, um, a ranger sniper team and we came across a, uh, a little girl who was out scouting our position. And I, she was ostensibly, I guess, herding goats. She had a couple of goats with her, but she was pretty clearly sent by someone to scout us out, um, maybe five or six years old. And I, I tell the, you know, she watched us for a little while and we watched her and then she left. And a couple uh, minutes later, a couple of Taliban fighters came, came after her. And I tell the story because um, I think it highlights some of the complexities of war and um, some of the ethical issues that come up in war because under the laws of war, she was participating in hostilities. She was scouting for the enemy. So she was a valid combatant. And so it raises, I think, an interesting question about autonomous weapons, that if you had a robot who you had built to comply with the laws of war and only shoot valid targets, it would have shot this little girl. And um, I know that wasn't a topic of discussion that came up. It's not like we debated shooting this girl. We watched her and we went, all right, well, she's, she's scouting us out. We better be ready. But it gets to this issue that um, a lot of the decisions that people face in war are really complex um, and involve sort of difficult moral and ethical dilemmas. And so um, I do think that that informs how I think about this issue quite a bit. Uh, I have a sort of a, uh, I guess, an appreciation for the fact that war can be chaotic and confusing. It can involve um, people making split-second decisions that are really complex, difficult problems that involve moral and ethical issues. Um, and I think I have a little bit of a grunt skepticism of technology. I mean, I work on emerging technologies in, in my work now, but I find particularly when I talk to, to Army audiences or Marine Corps audiences, um, particularly NCOs or like warrant officers, that just this, is, this deep skepticism of all this newfangled gadgetry that you know, the Pentagon wants to push on folks. And I get that. Um, I really actually get that quite a bit that I understand um, that you have to have things that work down in the mud and the muck um, and in these kind of really challenging environments. And so I think that does inform how I think about autonomous weapons and other new technologies. So the subtitle of your book is Autonomous Weapons in the Future of War, which introduces two things. One, the notion of autonomy, and two, um, the sort of time spectrum. We're talking about the future. Uh, and you, early in the book, um, sort of do... I think an interesting thing, and you look back historically, and then and you use that sort of time scale to address the differences and, and the introduction of various stages that are leading up to autonomy. You talk about um, things being automatic, um, things being um, uh, all the way up to things being kind of autonomous. How do you, I think these are important distinctions to make. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between these various terms? Yeah, this, this sort of question of the evolution of autonomy is really critical in a technology. Um, and it comes up all the time looking forward where people talk about, well, is this automatic or automated or autonomous? Um, and, and I wanted to kind of tell the story historically looking back and saying, well, how has the technology been evolving? 
and that might help us understand where it's going. And I started sort of rewinding history. Well, you know, you've got to understand that things like the Aegis combat system have been around for decades. And then I realized, well, really, I mean, precision guided munitions have been around for most of the 20th century. They started in World War II. And then as I kept looking, I realized, well, but, you know, machine guns have a lot of automation in them. I mean, that's ultimately what they do. And so the story actually starts in the book with the Gatling gun during the Civil War. And one of the things I thought was particularly fascinating about the Gatling gun is that its inventor, Richard Gatling, was motivated to build it by the idea that he would save lives. And here he introduces this weapon, the, the sort of you know, forerunner of the machine gun, that makes war so much more violent and horrible than it has ever been before. And the machine gun, you know, in World War One, unleashes this, this torrent of carnage on war that we've never seen, at scales we've never seen before. But his motivation was that he was looking at all of these wounded service members coming back from the Civil War. And he was saying, well, what if we could have a machine out there that is, you know, using sort of modern mechanical marvels, just like the mechanical reaper that goes and, and reaps wheat, that we could put a machine out there that reduces the number of soldiers you need in the battlefield. And the Gatling gun did this. It allowed four people to basically deliver as much firepower as 100. And in theory, you say, we're going to have less soldiers on the battlefield and save lives. But that's not, of course, what happened, is that it's just that we killed a lot more people a lot faster. Um, and then, you know, it kind of fast forwards through... Um, so that's an example of, of something that's sort of automatic, right? There are functions of that sort of firing process, I guess, that uh, now the machine is doing. Yeah, so you've got this sort of spectrum of terminology of automatic and automated and autonomous. And um, the way I kind of walk through it is that, is that, you know, when we think about these terms, we tend to use the word automatic to involve things that have these very direct linear um, relationships between cause and effect. So you think of something like a landmine as automatic. Um, you know, you step on a landmine or trigger it, and there's not a lot of decision-making processes in the landmine. You move to something that we call automated. You tend to think of things that have maybe a number of different inputs um, that come into its decision-making, and then it begins to undergo some sort of rubric or algorithm for making a decision about what to do next. And then this, this jump from automated to autonomous is one that comes up all the time. Um, and, and it gets a little bit slipperier here in that some people will say, well, an autonomous system is one that's learning. Um, that's not, I think that's actually not a good way to frame it. Um, really, autonomy is, is, I think, better defined as um, goal-driven behavior. So a car, a self-driving car, being different than something that many think of as automated in the sense of it has a goal, get to this destination, and it has a bunch of um, decision-making processes that it can undertake to figure out how to get there, but you're not programming in the specific moves. You're not saying, you know, drive 100 feet, then turn left, then change lanes, then go to the stoplight, then turn right. It's got to be able to react to situations in the environment that you didn't know about in advance. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about this is there really aren't clear lines between these things. Um, and a lot of it comes to do with how we think about the machine. And I see all the time when people talk about this that they'll use the word autonomous, often refer to things that don't yet exist. And then once we build it and people experience it, they say, well, oh, it's just automated. It's just following its programming. Um, and so I think that these are, these are valuable labels that we apply to think about sort of the complexity of the machine, but they probably aren't good places to think about, you know, drawing clear lines because the boundaries between them are very fuzzy. 
So I think, you know, the, it's pretty natural to, th- to, to look to the skies, I think, when we start talking about autonomy, because sort of the, our, I think the public's first exposure to widespread, you know, humanless platforms uh, were UAVs, uh, which were originally used for surveillance purposes and increasingly for um, kinetic operations targeting. Um, but it, there still is, you know, you send it up and it flies, it, it does what it needs to do, but you're kind of programming these things in there. Um, if you kind of if we start looking to the future and we're talking about actually targeting, presumably autonomy would be then um, it goes up, you send it to a particular area, and then it, it figures out the best flight path to fly around, and it's looking for targets, and it makes the decision to engage a particular target, right? Which is a generation beyond where we're at right now. Yeah, I mean the essence of the idea of an autonomous weapon is a weapon that's making its own targeting decisions about which specific targets to strike, which is generally not the case today. I'll sometimes hear people say things like, well, you know, we already have autonomous weapons. We have missiles. Um, It's true that we have had homing missiles since World War II. The first homing missile was a a German torpedo, the Wren torpedo, introduced in World War II with an acoustic uh, homing device to to zero in on on Allied ships. And so these are widely used today by militaries around the globe, and many of them are fire-and-forget weapons. And in that sense, they are autonomous. You release it, and you're not getting that thing back. And it's got some seeker on it, and it's going to do whatever it's going to do. But they're used in really constrained ways. And generally speaking, the person launching this munition has a target that they intend to strike. Um, the, the munition has been delegated the ability to maybe maneuver, to hit a moving target. But the person knows what they're trying to blow up. They're trying to blow up this enemy aircraft or ship or tank. Um, the, the sort of the, the threshold, really, what we're talking about going forward is something where, you know, a human would program the weapon and launch the weapon and give it some basic targeting parameters. But the weapon itself would decide which specific targets to strike. That is, generally speaking, that would be a, a new development. Now, there are some isolated examples. Um, the Israeli Harpy drone does this today. It's a loitering munition uh, that hunts enemy radars and can loiter for several hours at a time over a wide area. And so you don't actually need to know the specific locations of the radar. And it's been sold to a couple countries, uh, India, China, South Korea, Turkey. And the Chinese are reported to have reverse engineered their own variant of this. Um, so, so there are, you know, a couple isolated examples like that in existence. There were a couple uh, U.S. programs um, in the past, um, experimental programs like LOCAS or Tacit Rainbow that were never fielded. Or uh, in one case, the uh, Navy's 1980s-era Tomahawk anti-ship missile that basically did this. That was an over-the-horizon, loitering missile to hunt Soviet ships. Um, and the best way to think of that is, is really an autonomous weapon. It's not in service today. So, but, but by and large, we're imagining a world now where what happens when a Predator drone has as much autonomy as a self-driving car? And it's making all of these decisions on its own. What does that mean for the future of war? And is it, I mean, is it, are, are we sort of on an, a trajectory that we can't get off? Is this the future of war? I mean, that is really the essence of the debate, um, which is, you know, the technology is taking us here. There's no question that it is technologically doable to build autonomous weapons in a simple way today for what you would think of as relatively cooperative targets, targets that are emitting, for example, in the electromagnetic spectrum or in relatively uncluttered environments. Um, but 
artificial intelligence is moving forward at a pretty rapid clip driven by commercial advances. Um, it's certainly possible today for even uh, an individual in the garage to build a crude autonomous weapon. That's one of the chapters is I kind of look into, well, how hard would it be to do this yourself? Kind of a, a DIY, you know, do-it-yourself autonomous weapon. And uh, somewhat terrifyingly, it's not that hard um, because all of the tools you would need are commercially available. You could buy a quadcopter. You could put a gun on it. People have done that. Um, you know, some, some kid put a flamethrower on one uh, and put a video up on YouTube. So that's, that's been done. You know, the decision-making processes you would need to maybe build like a terrorist version of this to target uh, people are, you know, openly available open source tools you can download online for free. You can download trained neural networks that, um, that can identify people. And the skills that you would need programming-wise to build this are not that sophisticated. You probably need some programming skills, but you don't need, you know, a postdoc in computer science. Um, I go and talk to a local high school, local magnet, uh, you know, magnet science and math school in the area and um, talk to the robotics teachers there. And they, they tell me in the book, yeah, um, our students are doing this. They're programming with neural networks. So, so that's all going to happen. The question is, you know, could this, if we think this is a bad thing, and I think there are good reasons to think that it's not, not great if we begin to have uh, a world where we have less control, less human control over war, are there ways that it could be averted? Um, and I, that's one of the things that I grapple with in the book. I think it's, it's challenging. I don't have good answers for that. Um, I think the historical track record is really mixed. There are examples of successful restraint among nations on um, issues like nuclear weapons, blinding lasers, using the environment as a weapon. And then there are plenty of examples of failed restraint on submarines and air-delivered weapons. And the crossbow um, comes up quite a bit in these conversations. So there's sort of enough, there's like enough historical examples, people to pick um, examples to kind of defend whatever argument they want to make. One of the things I kind of walk through in the book is when you look at these in their totality, um, what do they tell you about the conditions that are needed to achieve restraint among actors in the battlefield? And what they suggest is that it's probably really hard for this kind of weapon. You mentioned that technology is essentially pulling us in this direction. Um, you also talked about this kind of open question about, you know, what's good, what's bad about it. So in terms of limiting factors, it's keeping us from, or not, not us, but keeping, I guess, the world from deploying more and more autonomous um, weapon systems. In terms of limiting factors, is it the technology? Is it ethics? Is it norms? Is it, you know, bureaucracy? What, what is it that's, key, that's slowing this pace? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. Um, I think it probably depends on the country that you're looking at. Certainly, when you look at the way the U.S. talks about these weapons going forward, you have very different kinds of statements publicly from U.S. leaders than you do, for example, from Russian leaders. Um, a lot of uh, U.S. senior officials, um, like former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work when he was at the Pentagon, or uh, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Paul Selva, have commented publicly on autonomous weapons um, and have really indicated some restraint in this area. This idea that we're going to keep humans in the loop, um, at least for now, which may not be super reassuring to, to folks who want something more, more ironclad, some kind of treaty. But it's very different than what you hear, for example, from uh, Russian uh, generals or um, Russian arms manufacturers who are making much bolder claims about autonomy and have signaled the idea of having fully roboticized units in the future. 
which is you know kind of ambiguous what that might mean. It doesn't necessarily mean that humans wouldn't be in control. Um, Sam Bendit at, at CNA has written on this and I think done some great work on how the Russians are thinking about robotics. But it's um, but it's 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 just a different kind of tone that you're getting from them. Um, looking historically, I think one interesting question to ask is if the technology to build autonomous loitering munitions has been around for decades, things that could loiter in, you know, target uh, enemy ships or enemy radars on their own, which is very much the case, why has it not been more widely used? And that's something I try to grapple with in the book is, you know, when you think about is the technology inevitable going forward, well, here we have this example where this technology has been around, it's not been used, actually. Um, I think one of the reasons is that for a loitering munition, this question of um, autonomous targeting is, is a bit of an operational problem because if you don't know where the enemy is, why are you launching this weapon in the first place? Right? If I don't have good intel that there's an enemy ship out there somewhere and a decent sense of its location, why am I launching a missile? And I have a limited amount of missiles, particularly on something like a ship where your magazine capacity is limited. Um, and so, so I think that that begins to change when you think about drones that are recoverable and that might have the ability to, to actually find the targets on their own, do the full targeting process on their own. Um, and so you might start to see more use uh, going forward. Does it also change um, if the stakes are higher? If, you know, if you have, are you more willing to take a chance if, if you feel like there's a, there's a legitimate threat against an aircraft carrier or against a, 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 you know, an, an entire brigade combat team or something? Absolutely they do. And, and the stakes change, I think, in a number of ways. One is that um, a lot of the context for how people think about this often is coming from the kinds of messy insurgencies and guerrilla conflicts that we see around the world today um, and that the U.S. has been operating in. And that's what you hear from, particularly from human rights groups who are concerned about these weapons. They're sort of thinking about these weapons being used in places like Syria today. Um, where you have civilians mixed uh, all around, and that's, that would be very, very challenging to do that in a way I think that would be compliant with the laws of war. Um, but when you start thinking about other environments who are targeting military objects, maybe under sea or in, in environments that, where there's maybe less civilians present, or just the military necessity is higher, right? You're protecting your country from an invasion. This calculus starts to flip. So when you look at, for example, how the South Koreans think about this, well, they're putting robotic sentries on the DMZ, and um, the, it's a little bit unclear, actually, how much autonomy they have. There have been some conflicting news reports about them. And so that's a place where they might see the, the necessity of these weapons quite differently. And in particular, this starts to get really challenging if the enemy starts to deploy them. So all things being equal, it might be great to say, well, we're going to keep humans in the loop. But if the enemy says, I'm going to take my humans out, and that results in an advantage in speed, does that force you to respond? Um, and I looked at something like stock trading as a good example of this. We've had this arms race in speed. It's one of the things that I, that I grapple with in the book is the, um, the accidents that have then come from high-frequency trading and these interactions among different algorithms operating in, in milliseconds at machine speed. Um, and one case where a high-frequency trading company basically bankrupted itself in about 45 minutes because of a glitch in their algorithm. And so how do you think about control of these things that are operating so quickly? How do you put a weapon on a battlefield that's intending to operate so fast that it's inside the enemy's OODA loop, but you still want control that it's not inside your own OODA loop? 
So the I, I wanted to go back to you. You talked about being in the loop. The the OODA loop, obviously, John Boyd's famous observe, orient, decide, act sort of um, decision cycle, action cycle. Um, you you mentioned uh, a couple of comments from U.S. Um, officials saying that we are going to maintain a person in the loop. And uh, I have to apologize to whoever uh, on Twitter I saw this from that I uh, that I can't remember who it was, but I saw somebody tweet essentially a comment about that saying, well, it depends on how we define in. Um, and there is this notion, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. You talk about being in the loop versus on the loop and, and what that means kind of going forward. I wonder if you can expand on that. Yeah, so we have these conceptual distinctions like in the loop or on the loop. But, but when you start to think about it in practice, it does get a little bit murky. So, you know, conceptually, um, people will use the term uh, in the loop to refer to what I would call in the book a semi-autonomous system, which could be anything, could be a car, could be a thermostat, could be a weapon system, where the machine sort of is ready to take an action, but waits for human approval to do so. Waits for you to kind of push a button to say yes. So a good example of a human-in-the-loop system might be um, the downloads, uh, the, the sort of automatic updates on your computer that require you to sort of say, yep, you know, download the update and go ahead and install it now. Um, you could have, uh, you could move to a supervised autonomous system where the human is on the loop, if you will, of the system's operation. And a thermostat in your house is a great example of this. It's going to, you know, you set the dial of what temperature you want it to be, but it's not going to stop and check for permission every time it turns the AC or the heat on. That would be crazy. Um, and, and so you, if you're in your home, you're in a supervised autonomous role. If all of a sudden you don't like the temperature or you realize it's not on, something's weird, you can, you can go look at the thermostat. But it's not going to stop and wait for you. And then um, we tend to talk about things that are out of the loop or sometimes fully autonomous if the human's not there to supervise its operation. So when you leave your house, um, then, you're, then you're out of the loop of your thermostat's operation. Unless you have some kind of you know, internet-enabled thermostat and you want to obsess about it, I guess, and check out on your phone. But, but generally speaking, then, um, there's some period of time where the system is operating on its own. Um, it can get tricky in, in some mixed-use cases. For example, where if you have a supervised autonomous system, and let's think about maybe a car operating in like an autopilot mode, driving down the road at highway speeds. If you have something like that that's super, the human's there, they can jump on the steering wheel and intervene, um, but the time of, of the, the speed of interactions is so fast, and humans are not cognitively engaged, then we need to be realistic about what humans can actually do. And that's something that comes up in autonomous systems in a variety of contexts. That oftentimes, I'm sure people, this comes up all the time in military contexts, people will say, well, you know, we're just gonna move to on the loop someday. And that may be true. And we have modes, for example, with the Aegis combat system on Navy ships or the Patriot air defense system for the Army, where we have these on-the-loop modes of operation where the human you know, turns it to full auto or auto special and the system will engage incoming threats all on its own. But we also need to be aware of the, the limits of what humans can realistically do. Um, in, and you see this in, in some of these uh, Tesla accidents that, you know, it can be very difficult for a human to be cognitively engaged in this process. And then if we expect a human to sort of sit back, do nothing 99% of the time, and then be ready at a moment's notice to leap in and take control, sometimes it's just, it's just not realistic. How far into the future are we talking about with, uh, how far into the future do you envision 
some of the uh, systems that you're talking about that are are truly autonomous um, being seen on the battlefield? I think the nearest term decision point that militaries are going to cross is in the fielding of stealth combat drones. So, you know, there are 90 countries around the globe today that have some kind of drones or RPAs or UAVs or uninhabited aircraft, whatever term you, you want to use. I don't want to offend anyone's sensibilities, uh, listeners. It's a sensitive topic for, for many folks, what we call these things. Um, but I'm just going to call them drones. So, so 90 countries have drones today and a number of non-state groups. And there are at least 16 countries that have armed drones, as well as non-state groups like ISIS and others. Most of these are intended for non they're for what you think of as permissive environments or uncontested environments. So they don't have a lot of stealth characteristics. They have very vulnerable communications links. Um, just reports out recently about um, uh, Russia jamming the communications of U.S. drones in Syria. So there's a lot of vulnerabilities to these systems. Now, most advanced militaries are building stealth drones that would be intended to operate in denied and contested environments. So we're seeing experimental versions from the U.S., the UK, Russia, China, uh, France, and Israel that all have at least acknowledged or, you know, it's sort of been reported that they have some kind of version of these systems that would be, you know, some of them are not fielded yet, they're in development, but they would be intended to go into these contested environments where you're going to have jammed communications. And then that raises the question of what do you want the system to do? And that fundamental question was actually what motivated inside the Pentagon um, now, I guess about, you know, uh, seven or eight years ago, the DOD's policy on autonomy and weapons, that um, this question about sort of what is the line, you know, when we get to faster and faster decision making, what are humans going to be in control of that had come up on a number of occasions in DOD documents like the Air Force's uh, 2009 UAS flight plan, where they kind of raised this question about the faster OODA loop and humans being pushed out of the loop. And, um, but, but, you know, most of the folks I talked to at the time had sort of seen it as a far off thing. And at the time I raised it with my, uh, my boss, cause I was in the policy shop at the Pentagon. So people were asking me, we'd be sitting around the table in meetings. People would say, well, what are we allowed to do? Uh, and there was no policy. I said, well, I don't know. We don't have a policy. Right. And I raised it with my boss and I said, you know, he sort of said, well, this is kind of far off in the future. And I said, well, but you know, we're actually building these experimental systems now. You know, the B-21 is supposed to be optionally manned. We've got uh, systems like, um, it's now, of course, the Air Force talked about the RQ-170, and, and the X-47 at the time um, was being designed to have a follow-on combat success. And we know that's not the case um, today, but, but that was at least at the time of the vision. So when we're building these things, when you lose comms with it, what do you want it to be able to do? Does it come home? Does it do reconnaissance and just take pictures? Is it allowed to drop bombs on pre-programmed fixed targets? Which is kind of like what a cruise missile does, so that seems pretty safe, um, pretty non-controversial. What if it comes across targets of opportunity? What do you want it to do? Do you want it to hold fire? Do you want it to attack them? What if it's attacked? Is it allowed to use force to defend itself? And we've seen a couple of these interactions now where people are putting robotic systems in these crisis environments. We see, of course... Uh, a U.S. drone that the Chinese picked up in the South China Sea. There was an incident a couple of years ago where the Chinese flew a drone into uh, contested areas over the 
uh, Senkaku Islands and the Japanese scrambled aircraft to intercept it. So in these environments, you know, what's the rules you want to put into this machine? So I think the militaries are going to have to program in something. And that's kind of the first decision point, really, for what do you want these systems to do? Um, and do you want to start delegating lethal decision-making to these systems? What are the areas that um, might listeners might find most surprising that you see autonomy um, potentially being introduced? And, you know, we talked about UAVs. There's talk about doing some, you know, similar things in the maritime domain. Uh, where are robotics and autonomous platforms or autonomy uh, going to appear that we're not expecting? So I found the most fascinating aspect of this researching and writing the book was the role of autonomy in cyberspace. When I started writing the book, I knew I'd have to have a chapter on um, on autonomous weapons in cyberspace. It would be crazy to write a book like this and not, and not do that. But I didn't know anything about it, and I started to look at other writings that other people had done, and I found that there wasn't much that had been written yet. Um, and then when we began to dig into this, I thought it was just the most interesting aspect of it because autonomy is so baked already into um, cyber tools and operations. And in particular, malware has some intrinsic autonomy in it. The first piece of malware, the, the Morse internet worm, you know, uh, was highly autonomous, spread on its own. And that's what uh, worms, for example, do. Malware operates on its own. So in that section, I talk quite a bit about Stuxnet, which had a lot of autonomous features, um, and then the, DAR the DARPA Cyber Grant Challenge, where DARPA really pushed the boundary in terms of autonomy by now building cyber, what, what some folks have called cyber reasoning systems that will scan software for vulnerabilities all on its own and then either patch them defensively or exploit these offensively. And the technology is basically inherently dual use. And so it just raises a lot of really interesting questions about where this is going forward in the future in terms of autonomy and cyberspace. Um, there's an interview in the book with David Brumley at Carnegie Mellon who was behind the winning team for the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge. And he talked at length with me about sort of his vision going forward, about introspective systems that would, um, that would scan their own software for vulnerability, which I just found really fascinating. And so I think there's a, that's a place where you're likely to see really near-term advances um, and where a lot of people, I think when I hear DOD officials talk about this, and there's a number of them quoted in the book talking about this, they tend to dismiss some of the risks associated with autonomy in cyberspace. Um, there's a number of officials who say things like, well, you know, we're going to have to use autonomy in, in cyberspace and the electromagnetic spectrum because of the advantages of operating at machine speed. We can't have humans in the loop. And there are certainly elements of truth to that. But at the same time, um, that's like, you know, everything is connected to the internet. <laughs> so if you have an accident there, it's not like that's not a big deal because it's non-physical systems. Um, you know, you could imagine accidents with advanced malware that would be incredibly destructive to the economy or the banking system or, you know, to like just the, the functioning of um, basic, you know, society and the delivery of foods to cities and things like that. Um, so I think this is a really interesting area where we're seeing autonomy advance more and more every day. Well, Paul, I think we're going to leave it there. There's a lot more that we could cover, I think, but... Um it's probably time to wrap it up. It, it, uh, it is, uh, Army of None is a, is, I mean, it's a tremendous book. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, so, so I really appreciate you making some time to, to talk to us. Thank you, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for having me. 
Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it's a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.